Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I guess that you've probably been wondering where I've been. Well, I've been right here and uh, actually feeling guilty about living in a spot where the weather is just absolutely perfect. You know, uh, however, having lived a good part of my life on the Gulf Coast, uh, both in Texas and Florida, I've uh, lived through my share of hurricanes, uh, not to mention several typhoons that we went through in the Pacific uh, on the Navy destroyer I was on. So, whenever a big storm comes up and threatens places where I've been or where I have friends and family, well, I uh, just can't seem to do anything other than constantly watch the Weather Channel and news reports coming out of the hardest-hit areas. But this past week has really been exceptional because not only did the northeastern United States get hit by one of the biggest storms on record, at the same time there was also a big typhoon that hit China and Vietnam, where I have uh, close friends that I think of as family. And on top of that, there was also a cyclone that hit India, where I also have friends. And in every one of those areas, you're going to find uh, some of our fellow saloners. So... I guess I've just been kind of distracted. I have been in touch with a few people, however, uh, like fellow saloner Ryan C., who told me that three large trees went down at his house, uh, one even crashing onto the roof of the master bedroom. But he and his family are safe and well. Uh, and uh, also I've been talking every day with Wild Bill, who you may remember from several podcasts, and who lives alone on the sixth floor of a building in lower Manhattan. And uh, yet today he's still without power, which uh, I realize is the case of millions of others who lived through that storm. And in the case of each of these three gigantic storms that were hitting various parts of our little planet uh, all at about the same time, well, there were uh, hundreds of thousands of people who had to leave their homes, and uh, some of them will return to find nothing left. It's, uh, well, it's really a helpless feeling to be sitting in a place where the weather is fine and not be able to do anything to help our friends and families right now. About all that I can do right now, I guess, is to uh, start podcasting once again so that uh, at least they get a little brain candy coming their way to help take their minds off their situation for an hour or so. In fact, uh, I'll do my best to get another podcast out uh, soon after this one, uh, in just a few days, to make up for my hiatus during my storm-watching period. So, let's get started on today's program, in which uh, we are going to hear the third in the series of the 2012 Planque Norte Lectures at Burning Man. And for you physics and coding buffs, uh, well, this will be right down your alley. Uh, in other words, this is a real geek fest, but... Just so that you don't think that geeks today are the same as they were 50 years ago, uh, why don't you take a look at the photo of Dr. Hewlett uh, giving this talk. And I posted that along with the program notes for this podcast, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. Somehow, uh, I can't picture one of my own college professors giving such a lecture in the Burning Man environment. So, as you're looking at that photo, uh, think about the title that Brian gave this talk. An Algorithm of Human Consciousness and Implications for Artificial Intelligence. And uh, see if that doesn't give you a little psychedelic jolt. <laughs> of course, uh, like I often do, I changed the title to Understanding the Default Process of Consciousness, which uh, seems to me to fit better with his closing remarks. 
Now, I'm going to have to be honest with you here. Uh, even with my engineering background, I had a little trouble following some of the equations that Brian was working on uh, on his whiteboard as he spoke. Of course, uh, the fact that I'd had a little medicine to relieve my back pain before listening to this talk uh, most likely had something to do with my concentration. However, uh, and again, I must apologize to Dr. Hewlett here, uh, but in the state of mind I was in when I was editing this audio, uh, I couldn't help chuckling and imagining that there must have been a few young guys in the audience who were uh, maybe tripping on something at the time and wandered into that big dome thinking that they were going to hear a lecture about psychedelics, but first got bombarded with a raft of equations, <laughs> which in turn probably gave them an amazing psychedelic head trip. But uh, now that I put that image into words, uh, I guess it doesn't seem as funny as it was in my mind at the time. So I'm going to have to listen again with you right now and uh, see if I can follow Brian's math a little closer and without my images of his audience in mind. Uh, and after hearing the last 10 minutes of his talk, where he summed up his remarks by saying, If you understand the default process of your consciousness and you work with that default process and start to pay attention to that process, then you can actually start to manipulate the process, just like you can manipulate any process that you understand. And after hearing that, I now understand what he was leading up to with his talk about set theory, which is a subject that I barely passed during my engineering studies in college. So don't let his math turn you off, uh, because what we are about to hear is a scientific explanation of William James's famous quote, you can change your entire life by simply changing your attitude. Thank you all for joining us out here in now what is a very dusty afternoon at Burning Man. Oh, so for our third talk today, we've got Dr. Brian Hewlett here with us, who's going to speak about his dissertation research and an algorithm for human consciousness that he's developed. So, um, so yeah, without further ado, this is Dr. Love. <laughs> Actually, Dr. Life. Oh, Dr. Dr. Life. Dr. Life, yeah. That's my, not, not the Kiss song. That's my burner name. No, 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 not the Kiss song. Um, I'm going to stick this up here so... You, so. Sweet. Good. So, yeah, the first part of this talk is pretty much discussion so that I can, we can all get on the, the same page because um, this algorithm that I'm going to be talking about is quantum in nature. So just to go through, we're going to have to do a quick like quantum physics 101 to kind of make sure everybody is up to speed on <laughs> what we're going to be talking about. And then uh, I'll talk about the actual the algorithm itself. And the algorithm is uh, basically an algorithm of how our default human consciousness works. And, and then basically from that, we'll talk about uh, some implications of this algorithm and your awareness of this algorithm or understanding this algorithm in, um, intentional, in creating intentional uh, psychedelic experiences or intentional experiences, period. And that's work that Rick Strassman and I have been talking about. And if you don't know who Rick Strassman is, he is the uh, spirit molecule DMT studies guy. Uh, and I'll tell you a little bit about how we met um, in the beginning. Uh, and then after that, we're going to talk about the implications of taking an uh, algorithm of this nature that is based on human consciousness and then in infecting it or injecting it into artificial intelligence and what that might mean. Okay, so just to give you a little bit about uh, background, uh, I am 
uh, Dr. Brian Neal Hewlett, and I received my PhD from the University of Arizona in social psychology uh, uh, in 2007. And uh, I have been, of course, very interested in the, the psychedelic experience and the psychological aspects of the psychedelic experience. Um, and to give you a little bit of scope on uh, how uh, my area of science runs things, uh, there are certain questions in science that you know a lot of people talk about, or a lot of people, um, a lot of people or scientists uh, are, are arguing about. And social psychology actually is great because we don't fall on either sides of those those arguments. The major two arguments is whether consciousness is uh, uh, a result of our uh, organic or bodily or biological functions. And the other side of the equation is whether or not it is actually an observer basically uh, outside of the biological situation, controlling the biological situation. And those two things are great, but we, on, we basically, in social psychology, don't really uh, give an answer to those questions. We, we believe those things are irrelevant because uh, there is a, a, a clear understanding in social psychology that if men define situations as real, they are real in consequence which means that's from a quote by W.I. and D.S. Thomas. And anybody heard, heard that quote before? It means that what you experience is reality, is reality, and it's got consequences for you. So the idea of perception for social psychology is what's, what's important. It's real. So if somebody perceives it, then that's the issue that they're behaving around, that they're feeling around, and that they are um, uh, thinking around, right? So uh, before we start um, to, on, on the algorithm, what exactly is consciousness? And, and I'd like to you know, have some people throw, throw their idea of what they think consciousness is. Because when we're talking about psychedelic experiences, we're talking about consciousness experiences, right? So a couple of people, what, what is consciousness to you? Subconscious and conscious thought. Subconscious, okay. I, I, I go by the rule of my mother. That's Beatrice Reed. She said you can never define a word with the word. So subconscious is still using the word conscious. So you have to say, what do you mean by that? Ah. Okay. <laughs> thought. Okay. So using instinct and thoughts to, to, to involve yourself in some kind of yeah, experience. Yeah, to interact with okay. the world. Yeah. All right. Anybody else want to throw out what their idea of consciousness might, might be? A, a society of mind of competing elements that compete for sort of the processor. Okay, so society of mind within one mind, or are you talking about society of minds of different minds? Uh, within one mind, but the, the the avatars that are running your mind are talking to okay. external experiences, and so it's driven as a network. Okay, so kind of a Freudian type thing where you're talking about you have like two different or three different types of uh, minds talking to each other. And within the mind, you have this uh, almost voting system okay. as to what. So a conversation uh, with the individuals within yourself. Yeah. Okay, and, and that interacting with others. Other, other people? Um, how about a, an, an emergent self-narrative? Mm, nice, okay. An emergent self-narrative is good. So you're saying... Uh, let me push this up a little bit. That it's um, a, a narrative of self that emerges out of your experiences and you then interact with Experiences that. weaving themselves together into a narrative. 
and then a further complexification would be an awareness of the narrative, okay. which then, but it's right. still an in it. Awareness, narrative. keep that word. <laughs> Anybody else? I think it's a genetic predisposition of electronic energy that individuals have. Okay, nice. So it's a genetic code that each person has. Okay, so you're basically saying it's a genetic kind of experience of energetic... Uh, but it's based on kind of the electrons and electricity that each okay. individual... Okay. So you're on the side of the uh, biologic biology. Science. <laughs> no, I'm a scientist, remember. Science, <laughs> science is the... By, by the way, science is the systematic application of methods to inquiry. So when people say they're a scientist, that all that means is that they're using the scientific method to answer questions. So uh, don't 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 get um, confused by that. All right, anybody else with the the synergy of information and knowing within the moment? Mm, okay, so a momentary synergy of information and knowing. There's a person in the back by the crystals. I have to get her. <laughs> She's sitting by the crystals, yeah. Just simply an awareness of thought. An awareness of thought. Okay, nice. Uh, I will say that uh, we're going to come to an, uh, a, uh, a definition that, we're, that I'm defining, obviously, because I have to. And mine is closest to the last, an awareness of thought. But uh, before we do that, let's talk about a couple that have come across the plate uh, in a while. Uh, John Locke in, 19, in 1690. Everybody know that name? said that uh, consciousness is the perception of what passes in a man's own mind, right? Uh, which is close to what we just said, right? Uh, uh, D.R. Griffin in 1976 said the presence of mental images and their use by an animal, which we would be animals, <laughs> to regulate its behavior provides a pragmatic working definition of consciousness, right? So just uh, you know, an animal to regulate its behavior through these mental images is consciousness. Uh, in terms of John Surley in 1997, consciousness refers to those states of sentence, sentience excuse me, and awareness that typically begin when we awake from a dreamless sleep and continue until we go to sleep again or fall into a coma or die or otherwise become unconsciousness. Basically, John Surley is repeating what the Hindus said, life is a dream, right? <laughs> uh, uh, let's see, some others. Um, we'll stay away from that one. Um, <laughs> Stuart Sutherland, consciousness, uh, the having of perceptions, thoughts, and feelings, awareness. The term is impossible to define except in terms that are unintelligible without a grasp of what consciousness means. Nothing worth reading has been written about it. That's what he said. Okay. So he obviously <laughs> doesn't like some of what's been out there. Um, uh, a portion of Alvin Goldman is what is standardly meant is ordinary usage by the word conscious. One use of conscious is applied to a person's total state. A person is conscious if this sense uh, is if they're aware of this al aliveness. But there's uh, also other aspects of that uh, total state of of aliveness, if you want to call it, that um, involves being reflexive and being able to kind of. Um, uh, examine that state of aliveness, right? Well, Brian Hewlett, which I don't know who that is, in 2012 at uh, Toward a Science of Consciousness used this definition. A state of awareness at a given moment that is indicated by an observer process of constructing phenomena. And phenomena are subjective experiences that involve actions, i.e. three actions that humans have uh, or any being has, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Right, uh, relative to a representation of a referent or some intentional object. 
All right. Are we, are we okay with that definition? So that's the definition that we're going with today. Okay. And notice the definition says it is a process. It is a, an a awareness that is involved, uh, and a, a being that is aware using a process. And so this is how we get to an algorithm. Because a process, an algorithm is nothing more than a way to state a process. Right? Okay. All right. So before we even, again, go further, um, we have to come to some kind of assumptions about this consciousness. Right? Um, we assume that in, in so social psychology or in this uh, uh, facet of research, that existence of human observers and their conscious perceptions are experientially synonymous. In other words, I cannot take you uh, uh, away or take you out of the experiences that you're having. And I can't take the experiences that you're having away from you having them. Does that make sense? So your experiences are synonymous with your being, with your existing, right? Okay, so if, as long as, if there's any of these that you don't understand, let me know. If you don't agree with or don't understand, let me know. And we'll make sure we get to that place that we all understand. Two, the known universe experienced by human observers is governed by various laws of physics. Right? We all, uh, in our perceptions, deal with these things called laws of physics. If I fall, I'm going to hit the ground. Right? So we all deal with those. Whether it's, not, whether it's a part of my perception or not doesn't make a difference. It's happening. <laughs> right? Okay. Um, human observers are agents of their own consciousness and associated experiences. It, that means that you have the ability to affect your own experiences. Is that real or not? You can make yourself happier or make yourself sadder. Is that everybody clear with that one? Right? Regardless of what situations can affect, you still have the uh, power to do that as well. All right? There is uh, something called a qualitative nature, or some meaning having characteristic prop properties to consciousness and associated experience that observed that people that humans observe. So there's qualities to your experience, like it's hot, it's cold, it is uh, there's red, there's uh, uh, I'm awake, I'm asleep, right? Those are all qualities to your consciousness. Everybody good with me? I, you, you're not, you're not, I'm not. You don't want to throw the darts at me yet, right? Okay, cool. Human observers perceive experiences consecutively, meaning in some kind of linear context, right? We all experience this moment as before this moment, right? And this moment as after that moment, right? Okay, so linearity. Oh, wow, you guys got food. <laughs> Human, um, uh, where are we? Human obs observers experience the same or duplicate qualities across experiences. I'll get some in a bit, yeah, I think. Meaning that all of you are all human observers and you're all experiencing me. So if you're all experiencing me, then we must be sharing qualities in our experiences, right? And not only are we sharing qualities in our experiences, we're also sharing qualities in moments of experiences. So this moment had the experience of me sitting in the chair just like the last moment had the experience of me sitting in the chair. So obviously qualities of experience are being sh shared across linear units, what we call, of experience. All right? Good. Nice. And consecutive experience perceived by single human observers share common qualities, which is the last thing I just said, right? All right. Moving right along. <laughs> so when some definitions that are important that I'm using. Existence, right? When I say existence, I'm talking about um, all phenomena experienced by or perceived as real or not real, right, to a human observer. That would be like you. 
you're a human observer. So all the experiences that you perceive as real and not real are your existence. All right? Um, experience refers to any phenomena or collection thereof that is perceived by a human observer who categorizes, it, categorizes those experiences relationally based on some conceptualization. So you all categorize your experiences in relation to each other based on things like the concept of family, right? You, ex you, you categorize family experiences as such, all right? Concepts are combinations of qualitative characteristics or properties that are perceived and experienced by human observers who assign them meaning. So you assign the meaning to the idea of family, right? You may get uh, outside, outside influences about what family is, but eventually you're the one who says, this is family to me. Right? And these experiences are family categorized. Qualitative characteristics or qualities or quanta, if we get into the, uh, the uh, consciousness studies field, um, is information attributes or units of perception that are combined by human observers to formulate meaning concepts. All right? So we all agree on certain things as certain things. Like we all agree that the thing I'm sitting in is a chair, right? But the only reason it's a chair is because we all agree it's a chair. We could all agree it's something else, right? So qualitative characteristics or these quanta are things that we agree terms, in terms of conceptually. Are we good to go so far? Okay. This, this uh, algorithm is defined in terms of set theoretical relations. Does everybody know what set theoretical relations are? Okay. Set theory is just basically saying it's kind of um, that... Uh, quantity doesn't matter. It's the fact that there's uh, all of us, I'll give you an example of what I'm saying. Quantity doesn't matter. It's the quality that matters. And any member that has a given quality is a part of that set. So we, are all, we all have the given quality of being human. So we're all a part of the set of humans. Does that make sense? We all are members uh, at Burning Man 2012, so we all are a part of the set of uh, members of Burning Man 2012. The set of Burning Man 2012 is a subset of, what was the first set? Humans, that's right, right? So set theory is talking about subset and sets and superset. Humanity is a superset of the Burning Man subset of humans, right? And we talk about set theoretical relations is talking about the theory of relations between different sets of different qualitative groups. Does that make sense? Sweet. And there are some things that we, uh, symbols and things that we talk about, and I'll explain them later as we look at this. All right? Okay. So we're doing good. <laughs> so in terms of the sets, which you're going to see on the board here, and I'm sorry we don't have a bigger board, but um, the set, when you define a set, you're using the, the little brackets, not the brackets, what are they called, the squiggly brackets? <laughs> the squiggly brackets. Um, you might not be able to hear me for this over this, but the squiggly brackets, brackets define any given set. So on, on the board, you will see the squiggly and EXP and, another, and an end squiggly. That's saying the set of experiences, right? So you'll also see on the board a squiggly and Q sub, sub um, set N or sub, uh, sub N, a squiggly end, and that's saying the set of all qualities of a given number. Yeah, uh-huh. All qualities of a given number. Or if you see that set with a Q and infinity, it's saying the set of all the infinite possible qualities. Does that make sense? With, okay, cool. Nice. 
Uh, so experience is another set, obviously, and that's a subset of existence. And then there's qualitative sets that we're going to talk about that we, as we go through that are subsets of existence and experience. All right? All right. Um, let's move on. I'm going to give you a, a little bit of a little exercise in, in what I mean about how we are involved in creating sets um, in our experience. So if I give you a quality, like, and, and these are actually concepts because qualities are even less. So when I say the concept hot, all of us knows what the concept of hot is. Is there anyone here who doesn't? Okay. Does everybody know what the concept of fluffy is? Okay. Does everyone know what the concept of white is? All right. The concept of salty. Okay. The concept of film. And the concept of chewing. Now, those concepts are made up of qualities, and qualities are not really definable. But you know that if you broke down chewing into something, it would be qualities that we don't have really meaning. It's only putting them together that creates the meaning of chewing, right? But hot, fluffy, white, salty, film, chewy. Chewing, rather. What comes to your mind? Because you're creating something based on those concepts, right? Uh, the first thing that came to mind was marshmallows, but they don't fit all. Marshmallows, Okay. What, what came to your mind? Marshmallows as well. Marshmallows. Did something else come to somebody else's mind? Popcorn. Did anyone else? Uh, okay, a large fluffy white monster eating something. Anybody else? Well, because all of us came to something, right? A movie theater. Okay, watching a movie in a movie theater. Okay. And that's what, that's, what I, that's what mine was. It's eating popcorn at a movie, right? But the point is, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about this algorithm is defining what, what we just did. It's basically arguing that all human consciousness is, is a process. And it is a process of taking these smallest units of existence called quanta or qualities, right? And you, the observer, uh, create uh, a subset of those infinite, uh, of the infinite set of those qualities, you pull out of that infinite set, a subset. And that subset you pull together into uh, a set of its own called an experience. And you actually are the observer. What we're arguing with this uh, theory or, or algorithm is you are the one that's creating the actual experience that you have because you are the one who pulls the quality from the infinite field, which we call the perceptive field of qualities and create a subset. And so your subset that you've created obviously now, it's, a, it's obviously a large amount of qualities, but you're at Burning Man. You are uh, at this Palenque Norte talk, right? You are a human. You are like uh, all the things that the qualities that we can break, concepts that we can break down into qualities that create your experience at this moment are a subset of those infinite qualities that are possible. And the thing, the way I explain this or give people the, uh, the uh, uh, what is the, uh, the experience of being able to create something, again, uh, in a momentary situation is to say, imagine yourself on the other side of the universe floating into a black hole as a piece of galactic dust. And every single person in here creates something in your mind. Right? However, none of us have ever been a piece of galactic dust. None of us have ever been to the other side of the universe, right? according to your physical being. None of you have ever floated into a black hole. Right? 
none of those things you have ever, ever done, but you obviously have a set of qualities that you've pulled together to create the experience that you just thought of, right? So this, this algorithm, excuse me, algorithm is talking about that and explaining that process, okay? Um, there's four, four pieces of quantum mechanics that, or uh, tenets of quantum mechanics that, I, that we need to understand in order to talk about um, this, this theoretical algorithm, okay? Who here is a quantum uh, physicist? Anybody? Anybody familiar with quantum mechanics? So, so, okay. So what is quantization? Does anybody know that? No? Quantization. Quantization is the first tenet of, of quantum physics. And quantization basically argues that we can change anything from uh, an experience of a bunch of qualities into kind of a linear experience that we can make quantities, right? So time is one of the things we do, we quantize. We create, we have an experience and then we break that experience down into different units of time called hours, minutes, whatever, whatever have you, right? Uh, Wave-particle duality is another aspect of quantum physics. And wave-particle duality is just saying that all energetic experiences or all energetic pieces or all energy is in both a state of uh, wave and particle. And potentiality is wave where it is not a physical representation, but it's uh, a, a potential experience waiting to happen. And particle is when that experience actually happens, and that particle happens when an observer collapses on that, on that particle of experience. All right? With me? That part is hard to understand. All right. So if you, you know what a, um, uh, a representation of a wave looks like on a screen, right? Where you have, uh, where lines look like this, and then they cross and they go, okay. So the wave... The wave part of wave duality is when the lines are going out and then they come into like an arc and then they come back together until they touch again. That's called the part the wave duality. It means that uh, if everything was at a line, it would be uh, physical. But since it's not at a line, it's spread out and it's in a potential state that's spreading out that, that represents the potentiality of anything existing. And then when it gets back to that place where they touch again on the on the line, that's called a particle. That's exactly where it would be physical. So anything that was potential would collapse into a physical space of being called a particle. That's what wave-particle duality is about. Okay? So you, in essence, are a particle because you're a physical and you're here and you're existing. Anything that's existing and not potentially existing is a particle. All right? Does that make sense? Give you a better sense of it. All right? Closer. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a hard thing to understand. Um, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle is the third thing. And Heisenberg's uncertainty principle it basically says that if, you, if energy is uh, connected in any way and interacted in any way, and usually when they talk about um, uh, electrons, if they're interacting in any way, when they separate interaction, they have memory of their interactions. And when something happens to one piece of the energy that was interacting before, there will be a result that happens to the other piece, even though the action was happening to this piece. So once things are interacting, when they separate, you do something to this one, some, it is, this one will experience the thing that's being done to it. Does that make sense? 
that's uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty. That's related to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And he says that if you try to basically define what's happening to one of those pieces of particle in one space and from the other space, you will be less certain about all the other things <laughs> about it. All right? And I'm trying to make this as uh, less scientific as possible so you can understand what we're saying. But basically, when these two pieces of energy are separated, if you do something to this one, something will happen to this one. And if you try to define this one based on what you know about this one, you will be less likely to understand what else is going on around or, or involved with this one because you're focusing on just certain aspects of it. All right? That's the uncertainty principle. Quantum entanglement is related to what we talked about as well, and that's the entanglement. Sorry, I think I went into entanglement instead of talking about Heisenberg. But the first part where you affect one and the other one is affected, that's called quantum entanglement. All right? So all energy is entangled, basically. And once they exist with each other in some way, shape, or form, then that memory of entanglement uh, affects what happens with it. Okay? All right. So that's the basis for <laughs> understanding this algorithm. So what you see on the board is, let's see. What we see on the board is, all right. So experience one, if we, like we said, all humans experience everything as linear. So based on that idea of linearity, all of us in some way, shape, or form experienced something called that first experience, right? Let's assume assume, but you know, some people may believe or may not believe, that because we're a physical scientist, that the first experience we're talking about is the first moment of existing out of your mother's womb. Can we all agree on that? That that would be, could say, would be a first experience, even though it may not be the first experience, which I don't believe it is, but um, <laughs> we have to go with one, right? So let's say that is the first experience we're talking about. And that first experience is equivalent to Remember we said that, that set of qualitative um, qualities that make up experiences, that's infinite, right? Minus, minus what we call the absence of any, the absence or, yeah, the absence of um, whatever qualities um, are created, are not created, whatever, yeah, the absence, the absence of whatever qualities are created in that experience. So when you're born, Right? You have a certain set of qualities like um, saying, again, being cold, um, light that you haven't seen before. You know, um, say, what else? What happened when you're born? Wet? Because <laughs> you experience, you're just coming out of your mother's womb, right? So those are a few qualities that you might experience, and those are actual uh, part of the set of qualities that you are experiencing. So experience one includes the, the infinite minus the ones that you are not experiencing. That's what that says, right? In other words, you're, the ones you are experiencing is what it is, right? But you can't define that in terms of the algorithm. You have to define it the opposite way, right? So that's what that one is, all right? Then experience one, we move to experience two because the next moment we have another experience, right? And that experience is not the same as the first experience, right? If the experience two was the same as the first experience, what would, what would be happening? If all experiences were exactly the same, what would we experience? If this moment was exactly like the next moment, and the next moment was exactly like the next one, what would we experience? There would be what? 
a freeze. There would be a suspension, like time would be suspended. Well, linearity would be suspended. We would not experience any kind of movement in time. We would only experience suspended animation, right? So since we don't experience expended animation, suspended animation, obviously experience two is not equivalent to experience one, right? All right, now you're doing good. You're doing with me, right? So this says experience one is a subset. This little C thing means subset. It's a subset of the infinite set of qualities that potentially can make up all experiences. That makes sense. We already said that, right? Okay. But we also see that experience two is a subset of experience one. All right. Now, that's the hard part to, to get to when people have to get to. Why is experience two a subset of experience one? Well, like I said, going back to what I said before, I'm sitting in this chair, right? And this is experience two now, say. And a moment ago was experience one. So if I'm sitting in this chair for both of, the, both of the experiences, there's something shared about both of those experiences, right? So if that's the case, and they're not exactly the same, there's a certain part of experience one that's a part of experience two, right? But there's also parts of experience one that are not a part of experience two. Does that make sense? Everybody, everybody with me? Good. All right. Yeah? No, it's not only a subset of experience one. It is also a subset of the infinite set of qualities, just like all experiences are, right? And it is a subset of... Uh, I'll just stop there for now, right? <laughs> all right? So then we move down to what experience two is, because that's kind of where you're going, right? Experience two is equal to experience one. Oop. Yes. Is equal to experience one, right? But this should be... Make sure that I... That's minus. This should be minus, right? Yes. There we go. All right. Messed up. Minus. Um, so if we, we say uh, your, your first experience is a set of qualities with some number, because we don't know the actual number, right? Quantity doesn't make a difference. We do know that there is a number, just like we know there's a number of pebbles uh, of, of dirt on the earth, right? But we don't know that number, <laughs> right? So we know there's a number of qualities associated with every experience, that experience one, and we'll call that QN sub N1, right? Whatever that number is, it's the first experience. But experience two, then, is that first experience, QN1, divided by two. It divides into two pieces, all right? And we're going to don't worry about the, the, the quantity of those two pieces at the moment. Just worry about the, the fact that the first experience is cut into two pieces, all right? Because that's possible, right? So it's a ratio now. We now have a ratio of one piece of, of experience one to the ratio of the second piece of experience one, right? And that is what we talk about here. So you end up with an experience, a piece of experience one called QN1A, right? And QN1B, which are the two pieces of experience one, right? You with me? All right. And what, what happens here is that piece is... Uh, the second piece is subtracted from experience one, and another piece that is equivalent in terms of quality, in terms of um, ratio, or um, yeah, in terms of ratio, is equivalent to the piece that you are now getting rid of that you subtract is being added, but it's not the same qualities, right? So it's qualitatively different but it is ratio in terms of proportionately the same. Can you understand that? I mean, everybody okay with that? 
Can you understand how something can be when I cut two pieces into two? I cut a piece into two. If I cut, a, say, a, a fruit, um, what is it, a cantaloupe or watermelon into two, I have two pieces. And those two pieces are proportionate to each other, right? So I can take away a, one piece of that watermelon and cut another watermelon, right, that's not the same watermelon, and have another piece, the second piece of the second watermelon, be the exact same proportion of the first piece to the first wa watermelon. Does that make sense? And I don't need to know what the number is of the exact measurement of that piece, right? I can understand that it's proportionately the same. But at the same time, that second watermelon may be green and not ripe, right? But the first watermelon was red and ripe. So proportionately, it's the same, but qualitatively, it is not. Does that make sense? Right. So that's what we're saying here. We're saying that that second piece, which you add QN2, 1, QN2, right, QN2, is going to be proportionately equal to QN1B, but not qualitatively equal. Why is it cut in two? Because in order, as we're talking about, this algorithm is talking about the process of your momentary consciousness, right? So you have, a mo at this moment, given moment, you have a set of qualities in your experience. But at the next moment, you don't have those same exact qualities. Because remember, if we did, it would be suspended animation. We don't. We have, we actually, what's happening is we're actually taking pieces away from that experience and pulling other pieces, like we said, proportionally, and merging them together to create the next experience. About experience one and experience, you're just talking about experience one and experience two. Yes. When experience three happens, it, it's, then it's one third. No. No. no well, well, I'll get to experience three. Well, okay. But we're just at experience two because I have to make sure that you follow the algorithm before we can get to experience three. Is that okay. cool? All right. Cool. All right, I, that's that's a good question. <laughs> so what we're talking about, you're correct. It is experience one and experience two that I'm talking about here, and that's it right now. Right. Okay. okay. All right. So. So what we've done is we've said that in order to create momentary experience two, we've split uh, experience one into two proportions. One proportion we've uh, called QN1B. Uh, we've thrown back into what we call the perceptive field, right? We get rid of those qualities, and we take QN2, and we pull that in from that field of perceptive qualities and merge it with what we left, QN1A, right? And that becomes experience uh, two. That is experience two. Okay? So in terms of experience three, what happens is the exact same process. All right? It now takes, because once you've merged, once you've merged those two, you now have one set, one subset again, right? You now have one set, and you do exactly the same thing. So by the f this, what this algorithm is arguing, yeah? Five minutes. Whoa! This algorithm is arguing is we basically do this uh, momentary, momentarily, we do the same process. We have an experience that we pull together, we chop that experience into two, throw a piece of that experience away, pull another piece, merge it together, we have another experience. Then we chop that, pull that, throw that, pull another piece in, emerge it, chop that, throw that away, pull that. And that's the default process of consciousness. Right? That's what this algorithm is arguing. Yeah? No, no, go ahead. No, I'm, 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 this is a good place. Because, because, because subsets do not, there's different types of subsets in set theory, 
right? There are subsets that include all qualities of a set prior, or all, and then there are subsets that are defined as some qualities. So there's like merged subsets, which would involve only the qualities that existed before. So, and I can't get into total sub theory with you, but I'll talk to you about that afterwards and talk to you about the different types of sets that can exist. And what you're so the type of subset we're talking about is not a subset that that does not involve any qualities that were not a part of the subset before. It involves some qualities that were, it involves, metaf involves a portion, right, a portion of the qualities from this, uh, from where are we, from the ones that were not. It involves a portion of these, right. You're right. Okay. So we've got about uh, three more minutes, right? So let me try to, to give you the implications of what this is saying. So basically, if we understand this process and we become aware of this process and we follow this understanding, then we can understand that we can create right, qualities in different ways. Uh, we can create experiences in different ways. One, we can change the proportion of how we chop our experiential qualities or subset qualities, right, to, to make uh, different proportions, right, which would change the experience that we have. So um, we can also then not just change the proportions, but we can actually f uh, use what you're talking about and either use more of what we have experienced before or less of what we have experienced before, right? Qualities that are, have been thrown back which are entangled with what we've already done or qualities that are totally new that we have never experienced before, right? So if this is the case, this is the implication of, of this kind of theoretical process. And not only is that an implication, but if we can do that, then we could actually, if we think about it theoretically, we could actually create an uh, experience, too, that has no, zero, right? Zero qualities that are associated with experience one, which would mean what? What would happen if you were able to do that, if you can bring yourself to do that? If this experience, momentary experience, was experience one and had no qualities of the next experience, what would happen to you? You would shift into a different place or space and time. So this has implications for actual time manipulation, right, which we've been talking about. And this is what Rick and I have been talking about in terms of DMT, because DMT does not, there's two things that I argued when we, he and I started talking that DMT does. It strips all experiences of two qualities, of these two Q things, right? And that's embodiment. You never have a DMT experience where you're in your own body. And you never have a DMT experience where you uh, experience that you're within a given time frame. So time and embodiment are stripped qualitatively from the experience by DMT. So if you can actually do that, which we do practice in Tibetan um, um, meditation and other things, is actually actively doing that, you can actually free yourself from those experiences. And so that's the kind of implications this is talking about. And the last implication was now what if we, what if we take this kind of um, algorithm and we place it into an artificial intelligence Will that artificial intelligence be able to do those things? Because it has less limitations as than the human consciousness because we have doubt that we've based on our experiences while uh, an artificial intelligence does not have that database of doubt. So those are things that I wanted to get into, but we just don't have time to. So, all right. Thanks for listening to me, and uh, I hope you understood everything. <laughs> Oh, five minutes for questions. Okay, sweet. Hey, guys. Five minutes for questions. 
So we got five minutes for Q and A. If anybody has any questions. So when you're you're asking or commenting on uh, DMT experiences uh -huh. not being embodied or contained yes. within your own body, is that like a breakthrough experience? Because I feel like I've had like small experiences, like with low dosages, uh -huh. where. I still felt like I was an observer in the same body, kind of watching okay. things happen. Are you suggesting, like, once you break past that? We're talking, well, Rick Strassman in his research did, like, like serious doses. Like, we're talking. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I, I like uh, 15 milligrams, things like that, you know. So um, when you are injected with... Uh, uh, enough subs enough substance to make you release because that's what happens. The substance makes you release DMT, right? To a point that it would be uh, death experience or um, you know birth experience. Those that that kind of dose of um, DMT. And every time, every person who experienced those doses in his research ex ex uh, experienced uh, experiences that did not have uh, a, a embodied that where they were not embodied and where they were not. Um, uh, there was no time. They could they experienced no time. Everything was endless, right? So I, I wouldn't say it's a breakthrough experience. I would say that it's um, maybe dosage. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I yeah. Um, you mentioned that there was a lot that you wanted to get to and you ran out of time. Uh -huh. um, what would be the most significant point you wanted to make that we could go away with? Uh, the most significant point is that if you understand the default process of your consciousness and you work with that default process and start to ex pay attention to that process, then you can actually start to manipulate the process, just like you can manipulate any process that you understand the, the process to, right? That you understand the algorithm to that process. You can, for instance, before, if you are in a, in a, a, a spaceship, and woke up in a spaceship, and you did not know how to operate it, right? And when you figured out how to operate it, you could then what? Go to wherever the hell in the universe you wanted to, right? And so this is the point that I'm saying. That, that would be the most significant I, thing, is for us to be able to, exp to understand the process, default process of our consciousness, which, by the way, this mimics the, uh, the Fibonacci and uh, sequence, right? And the, right, the... The, the golden ratio. So when we're talking about the two pieces, it's the ratio, right? And if we understand that process, then we can actually then start manipulating it and using it to change our experiences um, and create what, you know, serendipity and all those other kinds of stuff. So they're not serendipitous anymore. They're actually intentional, right? And then the, the second thing I would want you to say is that if you do that with your psychedelic experiences, you will have much, I mean, a much more meaningful usage for the medicine. This is exactly what the way the medicines were utilized by shaman, you know, thousands for thousands and still are for thousands and thousands of years. And I, you know, I obviously work with those kind of people. Right. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And I'm sure that, uh, like me, you would dearly love to have been able to follow up and get into more detail with Brian about consciousness and the psychedelic experience, which he touched on near the end of his talk. And I hope that you got all of that upfront math. 
You know, I, I guess I'm more of a visual person, and so without being able to follow Brian on his whiteboard, uh, for me it was, uh, well, it was kind of like listening to a lecture about art without being able to see the paintings being described. But in fairness to Brian, uh, he did in fact illustrate his talk at Burning Man, as the uh, photo of him shows on our Notes from the Psychedelic Salon webpage. Hopefully we'll be able to uh, have him back in the salon at some point and uh, maybe even being interviewed by somebody like Bruce Damer who can ask the questions that will help guys like me uh, better understand these interesting ideas. And one of the things that I really like about this talk is that such a heavy math-based and intellectual lecture was uh, actually given on the playa at Burning Man. In fact, uh, I had to cut out some of the audio where questions were asked by the audience because they didn't come through clearly enough. But from what I could make out, there were uh, plenty of people in the audience who not only understood these ideas, but were also actively engaged in conversation with Brian during the course of his talk. It was a uh, heady crowd indeed. So, if you've been wanting to go to Burning Man, but maybe your parents wouldn't give you permission... Uh, just have them listen to this lecture and then tell them that you're only going for intellectual reasons and uh, not because it also happens to be one of the best parties on the planet. Now, I've uh, got just one or two more things to pass along to you right now. And for me, the most exciting thing is that, and please don't count on this yet because it's really only in the wishful thinking stage, but as a result of quite a few of our fellow saloners promoting the idea, we uh, may be able to have Mickey Hart on as a guest one day. I've uh, finally started working on that project, and uh, now it seems that it might actually be possible. So if you get a chance, check out the Psychedelic Salon page on Facebook, where I'll make an announcement about it, and along with that, a request for questions from you. You see, uh, to be honest, uh, even though I own a lot of Grateful Dead CDs, I'm not really all that qualified to ask the right questions of Mickey. At least I don't think that I'd probably ask the questions that many of our fellow saloners are curious about. So uh, if this comes about, it's going to be a group effort. And uh, by the way, that Psychedelic Salon Facebook page is actually the work of our good friend Eric, who also ran Guyan Botanicals. Although uh, I mainly lurk on that Facebook page and only occasionally post a comment or two, the page actually belongs to the more than 1,000 fellow saloners who have uh, done whatever it is that you have to do to get attached to the page. <laughs> I guess that you can tell I don't know a whole lot about Facebook. Uh, actually, I, I just do the basics there, you know, like uh, post uh, notice of new podcasts, and uh, I do visit the home pages of uh, any new Facebook friends that uh, pop up during the week, and uh, I approve each one myself and go out and look at the pages. And uh, I do hope that none of my Facebook friends uh, takes offense, but I, uh, I never do any of those other things that keep popping up, like uh, okaying a birthday app or signing a petition or liking a page and stuff like that. Uh, I just don't use or enable any of the other features of Facebook, uh, in case you're wondering. Uh, wondering why I haven't responded to your requests, I guess. Like everything else on the net, uh, I have to be very selective in what I get involved in because, you know, if you aren't careful, you'll wind up spending way too much time in front of a computer. But uh, talking about getting out away from the front of a computer, uh, if you happen to live in the New York City area, well, uh, originally I planned on passing along some exciting news about a meetup in the city. But with the current situation due to that monster storm, it may not be too appropriate right now. 
However, on the outside chance that you either need some help getting resettled or are in a position to give some help, you might want to know about the Psychedelic and Entheogenic Society of New York City. I uh, actually learned about this through Jason Bennett, who uh, formed the meetup group and who also happens to be one of the leading acting coaches in New York, and uh, who you may remember has uh, also been a donor to the salon on more than one occasion. Anyway, uh, Jason started a meetup group a couple of years ago, and today there are around 800 members. Now, if you don't know about meetups, I'll be talking about this in a later podcast, uh, once Jason and I are able to uh, Skype about an idea that I had for a podcast uh, from one of his get-togethers. But I did want to get this information out to our New York City saloners right now in the event that uh, you might be interested. And to uh, find it online, just go to www.meetup, that's M-E-E-T-U-P, all one word, meetup.com, slash entheogens, E-N-T-H-E-O-G-E-N-S. And so a huge thank you goes out to Jason Bennett, uh, both for helping hundreds of people find the others and also for his long-term support of the salon. Now, here's another tidbit of information that comes from fellow saloner John, who writes... Among other activities, I'm a radio ham. One of the web forums I'm involved in uses a piece of free PC software called TeamSpeak. Using TeamSpeak, we meet live, and he has live in quotes, we meet live once a week to learn and discuss the kind of stuff hams are interested in. There are about 30 of us, although there is no limit to the number of participants that can use TeamSpeak. All that is required is broadband, a PC with a sound card, a fairly cheap headset-slash-mic combo, an open TeamSpeak server, and in parentheses he says, I have not done the server part yet, and then uh, he goes on to say, and the TeamSpeak software. One can assign a push-to-talk button on the PC keyboard, and operation is simple, fast, and transparent. I can hear the other participants in the group and can respond to them, and they to me. Usually there's a team host who helps things to run smoothly, like an informal chairperson. I wondered if this might have any merit for the salon membership. It seems what is lacking is worldwide live interaction of the kind TeamSpeak could offer. See what you think, Lorenzo. Best, John. Well, uh, John, I really like that idea, and I guess that I should go ahead and put up a WordPress blog uh, up on that findtheothers.net website that we've been kicking around. That uh, maybe will give some of these scattered discussions a better place to focus. And uh, I think your idea is a great one. It's uh, something that I'd like to participate in myself. So uh, (laughs) I guess that I'm going to have to put aside my reading for a while and do what I just recommended not doing, and uh, that is spending a lot of time in front of a computer screen geeking out. (laughs) Oh, well, uh, I guess I'm just like the politicians, and uh, I recommend that you do as I say and not as I do myself. Actually, uh, I'd normally use my age as a reason for slacking off on things like that, but uh, (laughs) I understand that John, who just came up with that interesting idea, is uh, actually my age, uh, give or take a few months. So I guess that uh, what I said about parents not letting their kids to go to Burning Man uh, for our fellow slaughters also goes for our fellow slaughters whose kids won't let their parents go, huh? (laughs) My, uh, what an eclectic audience we have here in the salon, huh? 
But then again, uh, that shouldn't be a surprise when you think about the hundreds of millions of people in this world who have either had a psychedelic experience or, or are maybe interested in the psychedelic experience or maybe smoked a little pot from time to time. And uh, once you realize that uh, our numbers are huge and uh, therefore there should be a lot of diversity. As most of our young nomads already know, there isn't a nook or cranny on earth in which you can't scratch around a little and find one of the others. You know, uh, we are the mycelium that will be holding civilization together during this century. So, find a few of the others in your area and stay connected. We are all in this together, you know. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. It is the impossible become possible, and yet remaining impossible.